Good morning to those of you here in the room with me. If you're joining us online, it's good to see you there too. Uh, yeah, we love that we can be together virtually. We love that we can be together in person, and I'm just thankful to be with you. I want to start us this morning. I just keep feeling compelled to read Psalm 63 as we start worship. So I, I went to Bible college. I do know a couple other passages of the scripture. Uh, <laughs> And it's not like I'm forgetting and, oh shoot, but uh, I just sense that the Lord has something for us in this. So, Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. In this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. I will praise you with songs of joy. Father, we cling to you today inviting your presence and really even just turning our attention and awareness toward you. And so whether we're watching at home and there are toddlers doing all of their toddler things, whether we are here in the space, whatever we come to you with today, you're glad to be with us in it. And so as we offer you um, our affection and our attention this morning, as we offer you a sacrifice of praise, would you grow our hunger for you? Would you grow our care for one another? And would you grow our passion to join you in the renewal of all things? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand if you're able and uh, leave your mask on and sing with us? If you're at home, I would encourage you to stand and sing with us, by the way. So... Uh, we'll go ahead and just wave to someone next to you, and then you can have a seat. Good morning, good morning. Uh, just a few reminders and announcements. Uh, Steph is not here because we woke up on Tuesday morning, and Jack's nose was a fountain of snot, is what I believe doctors call it. Um, and so it's still a fountain with snot. I've been, I've been rewriting to him, there is a fountain. Um, to that all week. Uh, and so they're at home today. So that leaves me with the dangerous position of doing announcements. And so allow me to look at my phone to tell you the things that I'm supposed to tell you. So uh, if you're just with us this morning, thank you so much for being here online. Thanks so much for being here in person. And we want to continue to invite you to not grow weary in doing good. And in this case, doing good has to do with pre-registering. So it really helps us out as we continue to kind of go into this season, um, even as kind of COVID craziness does who Lord only knows what, we want to make sure that we're ready for you. So by continuing to pre-registering, if you're not getting our text, if you're not getting our email, that is Preston. Preston, wave your hand. You need to talk to Preston and he will make sure you're getting our text and our emails. So that way you can get that link and register. If you ever have problems with that, Preston is your guy. So uh, thank you for helping us do that. Um, we are putting together for our Christmas gatherings, which by the way, if you're interested, will be the Sunday before Christmas at Regen. We have always done Christmas candlelight the Sunday before Christmas. That's December 20th this year, and we will be offering a 4.30 and a 6.30. And again, pre-registration for that is crucial because if we run out in those two services, we'll know if we need to add a third, okay? And so um, that is really important. And part of that service is we're putting together a Christmas video with our kids. And Randy is doing that. And this is Randy. And so uh, if you're a parent, you got her email. If you didn't, if you have questions, ask Randy about it. But we're going to, it can all be done from home. And we're going to sew it together and have a pretty cool thing. Um, and then last but not least, uh, we threw out there uh, starting last, beginning of last week. I don't know what week we're in right now. But uh, a Bible reading plan. So we're working through the Gospels together, and that's coming across our social media. And this time that we're kind of a scattered church, it's one of those ways that we can kind of stay on point together. And so uh, Preston, people have been texting me and saying, I don't know what this means. So people are doing it. Um, Preston was like, I don't even know. Are people engaging with it or not? They are. And I'm just leaving them to hang in their 
confusion is kind of what I've decided to do with that. Um, so yeah, uh, what do I do now? Is now the giving liturgy? Okay, let's do the giving liturgy together. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on. Uh, we're just trying to connect our work of giving into, into our spiritual formation. So uh, let's pray this together. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and show what you are like to all the world. I'm excited that you're getting good at this because I almost gave up on it and then you got good. So, um, so we're sticking with it now. So uh, would you stand if you're able and uh, let's sing together some more. We're here to offer ourselves to you. That may not be why we came. Uh, we may have come to get something from you. Um, we may have come to get someone off our backs. But as we stand in your presence today, Father, we're aware that we're come to give ourselves to you. And so God, we lay our good works, we lay our hearts, we lay our minds, we lay our present and our past and our future, we lay our hopes, our disappointments, we lay all of who we are before you. We come today as a holy and living sacrifice. So speak to us, Father, as we open your word together. Holy Spirit, come. Equip us to be the church you're calling us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Come on up. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5. Oh, Lordy. Grab that. Okay, there we go. We'll be in Acts chapter 5. Zach is co-teaching with me today, which is really cool for me. It's bad for him. You, he's like doing a grad school class this weekend. You're up till 1 a.m. Friday and then 8 p.m. last night. Zach's getting his master's degree in a branch of theology called um, apologetics. And apologetics is that uh, part of our theology that helps us give an answer for the hope that is within us. Give an answer for the hope that is within us. And today... Uh, we're looking at the idea of miracles, uh, starting here in Acts chapter 5. This week I was, uh, we're part of a ministry network called 3DM. And 3DM is about equipping ordinary people to uh, live as disciples and be on mission with Jesus. And so uh, we went through a 3DM learning community. Joey and Julia were a part of that. Um, a handful of others on our team were a part of that over about a two-year process, and now Steph and I are coming alongside other churches that are going through that process as well. And uh, some of you met Paul McConaughey, met Paul McConaughey at our uh, Naturally Supernatural event. On Tuesday morning, this, this event was virtual, so it was being hosted out of Fort Wayne. There were churches in Illinois, Indiana, Minnesota, Missouri, all over the place, Ohio. And uh, Paul was doing a devotional time and a prayer time, and on Tuesday morning, while Paul was speaking in Fort Wayne, someone in Worcester experienced physical healing. So a, a, wound, a wounded knee that they'd had uh, got healed in that moment. And the reason I tell you that story is because as soon as you hear that, something rises up inside of some of us, or most of us, if not all of us. Uh, that can't be. There's got to be a reason that happened. Uh, it could have been coincidental. 
And so when we come to passages like First Corinthians, uh, not First Corinthians, we come to passages like Acts chapter 5, we experience a similar kind, a similar kind of skepticism when we read this. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were being brought out into the streets on beds and mats, check this out, so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Evidently, Peter's shadow had some sort of healing property to it. That's crazy. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. The apostles are engaged in this kind of ministry, this signs and wonders, and you and I have a skepticism towards that. And for some of us, it's, it's this philosophical skepticism that comes from being bathed in the waters of our culture. For others, it's a theological And Zach and I are here today as people who have been following Jesus on what we would call the road to a naturally supernatural lifestyle and climbing out of ditches of skepticism and cynicism and disbelief in these particular areas. And so our our hope today is to help us uh, as a whole church continue to follow after Jesus in this naturally supernatural lifestyle. See, in, in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me any, for anything in my name, and, and I will do it. See, Jesus says that the supernatural occurrences of his life and ministry would be natural, common occurrences of his people. That's why the early church in Acts chapter 5 is performing signs and wonders. This is why John Wesley on Christmas Day, 1742, prayed for a guy and the guy came back from the dead. This is why the other day there was signs uh, and one, there, th- this guy's knee was healed. This is why uh, this spring when we were doing virtual prayer rooms uh, after our gatherings here at Regen, someone experienced physical healing while being prayed for in a Zoom room. Our fundamental assumption, Zach and I coming to you to teach today, our fundamental assumption as a leadership team is that what Jesus promised and what the early church lived is still available for us today. And that is why we're going on this journey, following Jesus toward a naturally supernatural lifestyle. You could picture it as a road. Malachi threw that up earlier. You could picture it as a road. Jesus is leading us down this road, and on either side, there are ditches. And on the one side is the ditch of philosophical naturalism. And I guarantee you, as soon as I said that, somebody in the room was like, yes, that's exactly what I think. Thank you for acknowledging that I'm a philosophical naturalist. That's not true. But philosophical naturalism, and Zach will unpack this, is this idea that the laws of nature are constant. Miracles break the law. And so we are going to just assume that miracles can't happen. That's, that's philosophical naturalism. But some of us are in the other side, which is theological cessationism. Cessationism comes from the word to cease. And cessationism uh, has this position that essentially says the Holy Spirit and his, the Holy Spirit's miraculous workings have ceased in this cultural moment. They've come to an end. This position says something like, I believe God can. I just don't believe God will. Uh, ooh, bless that baby back there in Jesus' name. Um, Kathy. You close those doors. Thank you. Okay, great. Um, while you're also holding your sleeping grandson, could you just do one more thing, please? Thank you. Okay. Um, I've been doing that. I've been accidentally saying to my wife this week while she's doing like five things, could you also do this for me? <laughs> Don't do that, husbands. Don't notice when that's happening. Um, Zach and I are here today as people that have been in these ditches and that God has been leading us out of these ditches. And so we kind of want to share with you not only our experience, but some of the ways that we've been thinking about this. So why don't you talk about philosophical naturalism? Yeah, after I agreed to preach with Kyle today in the midst of uh, 17 hours of Zoom set, or, well, I totally forgot that I was going to have 17 hours of Zoom sessions on the same week yep. and studying for a different topic. Which so is, actually the hero of the sermon is Jenna Byler. Yeah, who's watching right, from right, home. Right, right. Yes, so good job, um, Jenna, yes. 
So it, it's just, it was interesting though. God worked in, in good ways and that um, the other topic that I was uh, ended up studying helped with this one. But uh, I, I realized that I have always been more in the skeptical place with miracle talk, uh, more, more skeptical than, than not. And I hear people tell me experiences and I immediately have at least half my mind say, nope, no, that didn't happen at all. When he tells me about this knee thing that happened, I just, mm-mm. Um, that's at least half my brain kind of moves that way. Um, and I'm about to tell you why I probably do that. But for me, the two ditches that I fall into is definitely more towards that philosophical naturalism. Um, and, and that actually disappoints me. It, it, it disappoints me. And I was going to say it frustrates me, but it actually it doesn't frustrate me. Frustrate to me is a little bit almost too neutral. It disappoints me because, and it also confuses me because now that I'm getting an understanding uh, that I've been predisposed to be skeptical towards God, um, it just, ha- just doesn't kind of rub me the right way. So I'm disappointed because if I was telling you my testimony, I've got three events in my life that, would, that indicates that there is something, uh, something else afoot. And one of the two of them uh, can only be explained by me as something like... Uh, an experience of a powerful presence, a presence that, that made me ill, a, a, a presence that made me feel um, um, under pressure. And, and, and the, the only thought that came to my mind at that moment was, this is God. And where did that come from in a skeptical, near-atheistic 16 and, you know, uh, at the, and then 10 years later, 26 years old? Um, the other one was in... in, in perfect fashion, God speaks to me. I like to create arguments with people. Well, God showed me that he can argue right back with me right after I am making a case for how selfishness is a good thing. God makes a clear argument back to me saying in verbatim, selfishness is not the way to happiness. So it's, and I'm confused because when I have experiences like that, and then I hear the experiences of others, well, how can I hold in one hand my experiences and then on the other hand, say everybody else's experiences aren't right or there must be some type of uh, flaw in that. And what I think I'm saying is at least partially summed up by a man named Walter Wink, who I have no idea who he is, but I, I applaud his name, and his, so is, I applaud his parents for that, doing that. <laughs> um, Wink says, people with a reduced sense of what is possible will bring that limit on possibilities to the Bible and diminish the Bible by the poverty of their own experience. We diminish the Bible by the poverty of our own experience, Wink says. And essentially what we do, another way of looking at that is, is, and you guys have probably heard this, we put God in a box. But can we really limit God? Can we really put God in a box? The answer is no. So what's going on here? Well, the box that we like to put God in is a predetermined and unexplained unexamined philosophy. And that predetermined and unexamined philosophy is another way of saying philosophical naturalism. And I agree, no one here, no one sitting here right now is probably a philosophical naturalist. It would, that would be very rare. If, and if you are, you're a visiting atheist wondering about uh, Christianity because it's impossible to be a Christian and be a philosophical naturalist. Um, but appreciate this fact. Everyone sitting here has been influenced by something we have we, uh, three to four hundred years ago called the Enlightenment. And Enlightenment, the Enlightenment is an intellectual movement that uh, valued rational thought and inval- uh, 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 empiricism, meaning you need, to, you need to study this and prove this from an empirical standpoint. The, the scientific method was the golden calf of the uh, Enlightenment thought. And things like tradition and things like experience fall by the wayside as a result of that. Not, mm. Actually, they just get ousted out of academia mm. to the point where um, this is why we're all kind of steeped in this is because we've all, we're all educated here. You know, so we're all educated in Enlightenment thought. So to level the playing field around this topic of miracles and to help you around disappointment and confusion, if that's what you're feeling like I feel when I uh, feel torn between experience, mine and others, and maybe a lack of experience. 
It helps to understand that we live in a culture that makes it difficult to experience and participate in miracles with God. Another problem we inherited from that Enlightenment period is a bad definition of what miracle is. I think most people would define a miracle as a supernatural event, and this is most likely a a relic of that same time period. The prefix super, in my opinion, takes away from our understanding of God's relationship with us. So Richard Pertill, a uh, professor from Western Washington University, has a better one, and he says, a miracle is a temporary event that is an exception to the ordinary course of nature. An exception to the ordinary course of nature. What I appreciate most about that definition is that it gets rid of the word super. Um, And historically, miracles did not contradict what we under, uh, understand as natural law. In fact, St. Augustine says, what appears contrary to nature for us does not appear that way for God. Mm-hmm. For him, nature is what he does. Nature is what God does. Now, hear what I'm not saying. Kyle's talking about naturally supernatural. We have a, um, a connection of sorts with this ministry called 3DM. And they have, and, and, and Paul McConaughey has a great process that we went through, which was just called Naturally Supernatural. What I'm saying is supernatural is the common way that we understand and how we define a miracle. So I'm saying, say, use the word supernatural. What I'm doing in this sermon today is basically all that St. Augustine is saying. I'm trying to draw the line and say that what God does is natural. We don't need the word supernatural. It's just what God does. You want us to be naturally natural. I want us to be naturally natural and let God be out of the box. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, to illustrate a natural miracle, do this thought experiment with me. We're going to call on the help of some extraterrestrials. Yes. So um, suppose aliens from outer space come down and of all things, they want to observe our traffic light laws. And they want to see what's going on with a green light and a yellow light and a red light. And shortly after doing that, it wouldn't, unless they're, well, we'll just keep going. Shortly after (laughs) doing that, um, they would figure out that there is an ordinary course of events. There's an ordinary course of events. We, We go on green, we slow down on yellow, and we stop on red. Okay? And they'd be examining this time after time. It, it would be a, it would become a law to them. It would be indisputable. But then, a ambulance comes racing through a red light and this would be a new occurrence to them they would say what is this but everybody else would would stop and they would see that everybody else is stopping and everything else is responding to that and i think if we take the analogy a bit farther we would find that if they somehow however aliens do this they would follow the the ambulance to its end and they would realize that ambulance did something good they would find that that ambulance actually made a difference in the world even though it Uh, through a wrench in the ordinary course of events. That, to me, is an ordinary miracle. It's a natural miracle. Your battery's going low. This might be a short sermon. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, what what I'm saying is that we can can realize that there are going to be ambulances that, that scream through our life. That's ordinary to us. It's natural to us. And we can look at miracles in that same way. So, if matri- so here's the question, though. So if, nat- if miracles are so natural, why is it claimed by some that miracles are not part of the human experience? Why have so many of in- you in here have not, not experienced some type of miracle? Why have people in this room right now and people listening not experienced a miracle, not been healed emotionally, physically, if it's so natural? Well, this is probably the biggest knock to the miracle discussion, and I admit I don't have the answer to the people that... Uh, haven't had this experience. But there's something to do with God's sovereignty in this, in this conversation that we just don't know about. And what I can tell you with certainty is that as believing Christians, our destiny is that we will all be healed someday. Mm-hmm. So you can count on that fact at least. But regarding the miracles not being a common experience for human beings, that's simply false. That's 100% false. So, and, and some t- statistics show this. In 2006, Pew Research did a survey of 10 different nations, and what came out of that is 200 million reports of supernatural and, div- or we'll say, yeah, we'll say supernatural and divine healings. 
those, uh, many of those were um, charismatic and Pentecostal reports. But if you think like, oh, we're not charismatic and Pentecostal, well, think again, because 39% of those 200 million, you do the math, of that were not charismatic and Pentecostal Christians. They're just regular folks like us, I think. Um, I hope we're still regular folks. Yeah. So in other reports, other reports say that 50% of new conversions in China come from faith healings. One-third to a half of Muslims being converted to Christianity happen through dreams where they see Jesus doing amazing things and telling them to, to walk away from wherever they're walking, to, uh, him introducing himself to them as Jesus. Um, if they pray for Allah, they say, Allah, show me who you are, and Jesus shows up in their dream. So the notion that it is not common human experience is rubbish. Is rubbish. Really great British phrase. <laughs> and now, I, I, and, and it makes us wonder, it makes me wonder, if it's, if it's not our common experience, is it something that we're doing individually uh, wrong, maybe, or um, incompletely, or is it something to do with where we live? So I, I want to let you guys in on a couple of secrets that aren't actually secrets, but they're, they're so perfectly natural to us that we forget that we experience miracles on a daily basis. Um, see, I believe that God is still in the miracle business, and I'm so confident uh, of that for two reasons. First, in Romans, Paul tells us that our experience of seeing the universe reveals God's invisible attributes and divine character. And to date, astrophysicists and mathematicians cannot figure out how the world that we live in and the universe that our world is in is so finely tuned so finely tuned to just uphold the laws of nature that we so cherish from enlightenment uh, thought. There's, there's, uh, and then the second claim is this, and we all believe this because we're professing Christians. The second claim is this. Jesus Christ in, uh, died on a cross and was raised back to life. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, actually hangs this fact, this miracle, he hangs this on a hook and says, if you, can dis if you can disprove this miracle, then you can go on and believe whatever you want. This is why I always tell people that if you want to find out the truth, which religion is true, then you need to search through Christianity first. And it's because Paul does this, Paul does a, basically a disservice to Christianity. It actually works out in our faith. But he says, if you, can, if, if you can look at all the facts of Christianity and you find out that this one thing is true, then what you need to realize is that everything else Jesus said is most likely true too. And what Jesus talks about all throughout the Gospels, 40% of the pages in the book of Mark have to do with miracles. 30% of the verses talk about miracles. So if there's one thing that's even more historically accurate than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's that Jesus Christ was a miracle worker and an exorcist. So this is in our tradition, and, it's, it, it, and it can't be removed. But what about folks that uh, just harden their heart towards it and um, refuse to believe in this? So we have uh, skeptics like, uh, her name is Harriet Hall, and in, in Skeptic Magazine, she goes in there and she tries to disprove um, divine intervention in the world, and she says some stuff like this. Spontaneous remissions occur. People that are not fully dead revive and become undead. There are charlatans in the world. Diagnostic tests frequently are misinterpreted. Coincidences happen. I'm sure we've all used that one. Some people have motivation to lie. Those are all 100% accurate. And, and many of those claims can probably disprove those 200 million reports that we see in Pew Research, but by no stretch of the imagination can all of those claims disprove every single one of them. And if they could, we still are stuck with the fact that when you guys opened up your eyes this morning, you experienced a miracle. Because the finely tuned nature of our universe, it's so finely tuned, imagine this. The existence of our world and the ability for that to happen would be like painting a dime, one dime red, and putting into a stack of dimes that cover five billion North American continents stacked up to the moon. The ability that our world exists would be like blindfolding and trying to snag that red dime out of that pile. 
That's from astrophysicists uh, like um, Pokinghorn and um, even, uh, who's the guy with the synthesizer? I just think that you made up Pokinghorn. That's all. No. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a real person. Um, I can't think of his name right now. Ask me about these things later. Um, but no matter how powerful the argument it is for, for somebody that doesn't want to believe in miracles, uh, philosophical naturalism basically denies miracles because they say that they violate natural law. And something of that same reasoning happens with us as Christians. We may say, or at least I might say, I can't pray for miracles and I can't ask God to do something for me or for somebody else because it's never happened before in my experience. So I'm not going to pray for these things. I'm just going to just skate on by and not, and not ask for this. And it's circular reasoning. It's bad reasoning straight from the Enlightenment period that, that fractures our experience with Jesus that Jesus is trying to call us into. Mm -hmm. Church, we certainly expect the laws to be constant. This is a miracle in itself, but we can also be justified and rational in expecting that an ambulance can go flying through the red light from time to time. But even more, we should not only expect it, we should ask for it, and we should, we should feel that, we should not feel awkward in praying for a miracle. Regardless of the outcome, my prayer for a miracle is, 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 is held up by the trustworthiness of Christ. With Jesus, what's done is done, and through faith in him, we can pray for these miracles, and we know that we're going to have eternal life. That's mm. a guarantee. We do not need to be embarrassed by miracles. We do not need to be embarrassed or feel weird about praying for these things, because Jesus says that we have the authority and the power to do these things as ours. So you hear the story of a guy who in Worcester, a guy in Fort Wayne was praying for him and his knee was healed. And so you start thinking, okay, that was just a spontaneous remission, right? That was just a coincidence that in that moment, he felt a warmth in his knee and was able to do lunges in his friend's kitchen just to prove it. Um, my friend Nate was like, yeah, I made him do lunges in the kitchen just to show me. <laughs> and, um, you know, I go to Cuba and we see legs grow out and people healed and you start to kind of wrap your head around uh, like maybe that was coincidental. That's the voice of scientific naturalism, of philosophical naturalism speaking to you. But then sometimes there's this more theological voice in our head, and the theological voice is God doesn't do that. So that was just a coincidence. God doesn't do that, and so maybe that was actually the enemy trying to deceive a person, right? And that's the voice of theological cessationism. And I would argue that theological cessationism actually takes on at least three forms. And one is this more committed, studied, uh, biblically grounded uh, cessationism, usually argued out of 1 Corinthians 13, which says, I believe God did, but I don't believe he will anymore. So committed theological cessationism says that the miracles that we see the apostles doing, if they didn't entirely disappear, they are no longer normative, they're no longer normal for the church's life since the New Testament canon was finished. So the, the, that argument is the apostles were given miracles and signs to attest to the truth of the gospel. And once the New Testament was finished, the, that, those miraculous workings, if they're not gone entirely, they are not normative for the church's life and practice. Uh, committed uh, cessationism, I would just let you know, is held only in the academy. Uh, it is held only in places like Dallas Theological Seminary. It is held only in places like Moody Bible Institute. Um, in practice, global Christianity um, is, is charismatic. In fact, Paul McConaughey, who's British, would say you can't find a Christian in Britain who doesn't believe in some extent of the Holy Spirit's supernatural workings, right? So you have committed, John MacArthur is big on this too, um, some, uh, some like Bible Church Baptists are really big on that, uh, and I have lived there. And then there's functional, right, which is I believe God can, I just don't believe he will. Uh, and this is how we kind of articulate that. Oh, Art and Pam are missionaries, they're super spiritual, so they can do that stuff when they're on the mission field and maybe bring it back here with them, but I'm not spiritual enough to, to do that. Um, we, we, I'm okay with hearing testimonies of miracles uh, in from missionaries in Africa, but it's just not all that common here. I believe that God can heal that guy's leg. I just don't think he will because we have doctors and nurses and all of these kinds of things. 
But then there's this other kind, and I was processing this this week, and I've been functional too. And then there's reactionary, uh, which is I believe God can, but they're weird, right? Um, a seminary professor of mine, Dr. Pete Bellini, uh, who is this huge Sicilian guy from Little Italy in Cleveland, who no joke was part of a gang, um, and I think he could kill me uh, with his one hand, um, said to me while we were in Cuba, oh, the, the reason people don't like this, he's got this accent, the reason people don't like Holy Spirit stuff is because you encounter granola. You encounter nuts and flakes, right? I have met people that are like such good friends with the Holy Spirit that it's kind of hard to hang out with them, right? Uh, and, and so I've lived in all three of these places. I've studied in institutions uh, where committed theological cessationism was the biblical way to think about the world. And then you go and you plant a church and you have weird things happen to you. And so you think, okay, I'm going to go to functional because clearly some of this stuff happens. We had some experiences with spiritual warfare in the early days of regen um, that make you think, okay, well, it, it's just not, it's, I think God can, I just don't think God will that often. And I was in that functional place and then I started meeting some of the nuts and flakes and I started being like, yeah, I don't, I, I would like to still be like in conversation with people and not like everything that happens around me be something that God did, right? And, and so I've lived in all of these places and it's not talking to people that has changed my mind. It is not going to Cuba that has changed my mind. What's changed my mind about all of this um, is ultimately scripture itself. What has changed my mind about all of this is scripture itself. Um, when I read the Bible and I look at the life of Jesus, I see Jesus doing all sorts of miraculous things, and I see a Jesus who says, you're going to do even greater works. And y'all, greater works is not a publishing company in North America that Jesus couldn't have ever done on his own. Jesus' greater works, I mean, the greater works are of the miraculous nature. And here's what's clear, is that the Bible is saying that Jesus' life is a model and pattern for my everyday life. We all agree with that. But here's actually what we really believe. We believe that Jesus' life is a model and a pattern, but that that model and pattern are pretty much unattainable to us. And so what we settle for as followers of Jesus is we try and we fail, and we try and we fail, and we say that must be what the Christian life is like. The Christian life must be trying to attain to be like Jesus, but really only ever seeing failure. But if Jesus' life really is a model for me, I do see Jesus having fruitfulness as he pursues these things. And here's actually what scripture says. It doesn't say that Jesus' life is a model that is infinitely high above my, my life and it is therefore unattainable to me. What scripture says, speaking of leveling the playing field, is that Jesus has given us his own power and his own presence, which means the model is far, much further down here which means by walking by the Spirit, since we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit, says Galatians 5. Not only is Jesus' life a model for mine, it's actually a livable and real model. I think one of the biggest spiritual strongholds that the enemy has convinced the American evangelical church to believe is that we will only really ever fail in our spiritual life. And I don't see, I see the apostles failing a lot, but I also see them succeeding too. I also see them faithfully living out the way of Jesus. And so if Jesus' life is marked by everyday occurrences of the supernatural, and if Jesus' life is my model, then it is true that Jesus says, I'm going to the Father and you're going to do the same kinds of things I did. And what Jesus is picturing there is, um, it's like when he ascends to be with the Father, it leaves a hole that he invites you and I and all of his people to fill as we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can continue to do the kinds of things that Jesus does. That's what it actually means to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus calls us to be his hands and feet. And as we fill that hole and walk by the Spirit, we do that in supernatural ways. Committed cessationists will typically point to 1 Corinthians 13, as the foundation for their position, and I don't have time to get into it in its fullness, but the problem to me is that 1 Corinthians 13 is far more about heaven. Paul says when things are complete and when perfection comes, the imperfect will pass away. The New Testament has arrived, 
but, a, imperf but imperfection has not gone away, right? And so this idea that it would pass away for a period of time, you can't ground that argument in 1 Corinthians 13, which is about heaven, not so much about the closing of the New Testament. And functional cessationists who say the super spiritual can do these kinds of things. I see that Jesus has that authority, but I don't think I have that authority. I see Art and Pam have that authority. I don't think I have that authority. What we fail to miss is that the minute we say yes to Jesus, Jesus makes all of his presence and power available to us. That Jesus seeks for us to take hold of that for which he took hold of us. The gifts have not ceased. In fact, we have been given authority to call 911. We've been given authority to call 911. We've been given the authority to send the ambulance running through the red light. Zach told me the story this week that when he was little, he kept calling 911, and so the police told his parents if that kept happening, they would arrest them. Um, whether or not that's true, that's a very effective tactic, I think. And so, um, so Zach stopped, and then when we become adults, we have the authority to call 911, don't we? And really what we're saying, and this is Zach's illustration, by the way, uh, give credit where credit's due, we have the authority to call 911. Jesus has called us into a partnership with him that is so real and so mutual that we have been given the authority to call 9-1. And listen to me. Have the gifts of the Spirit been abused? Yes. Do people chase the gifts more than they chase the giver? Yes. Is it easy to love the experience more than we seek the fruit of the experience? Yes. Yes. But look at what's happening in Acts 5. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. The believers were meeting regularly at the temple. As a result, it says, yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, both crowds of both men and women. We're not in it for the experience. We're not in it for the tingles. We're in it for the sake of the mission. We're in it because we've said that we're going to lay our lives down and be like Jesus in every way. We are in it because we want to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold for us. And so here we are on this road, a road where we are following Jesus to live fully into the lifestyle that he had. Not only the fruits of the Spirit, but the gifts of the Spirit. And staying on that road and not following into either ditch is the work of repenting and believing. And what we tend to think, this is Mark chapter 1 verse 14, Repent and the time has come, the good news, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. What we tend to think is that repenting and believing is a one-time action that we engage with when we first follow Jesus and then we're kind of on coast there. If you're in a huddle, you've learned this. Um, what we are actually saying is that key practices to staying on the road in any dimension is a lifelong habit of repenting and believing, of changing your mind to agree with God and then stepping out in faith to do what he says. And so Zach and I are suggesting here to you today that the way that we follow Jesus on this road to a naturally supernatural lifestyle is by repenting and believing. So why don't you talk about repenting for, what do you think, about 10 minutes? I'll do 10 minutes. We'll worship for a half hour. You'll be home by two. Okay. No, yeah, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll be quick. So Every time Kyle tells me a new story that just happens to pop out of Paul McConaughey's mouth, yeah. which is awesome, it's, and, and I'm, I'm learning to love it now because I'm repenting. Like the guy who was healed of terminal bone cancer who wasn't even a Christian who left and instead of becoming a follower of Jesus because God healed him of stage four terminal bone cancer, just decided to travel the world. Yeah, like that. So I'm, I'm learning, Thank you very much. I'm learning to love that because... Because I'm repenting, and repenting to me is like every time one of those stories comes, that's a moment. It's a moment where I can step into that story and just listen for what God's saying in it. Hmm. And I can listen to what my friend Kyle and what Paul and what anybody else that wants to tell me a great story like that, I can listen to you and connect with you on a way, as opposed to writing you off and jumping in the ditch of philosophical naturalism and just being my own stubborn way. Hmm. That's not repenting. That's not changing my mind. God's calling us to change our mind in this particular area. We're called to change our mind and believe is not just intellectual assent, it's relational activity and it's relational activity that's expressed by stepping out in faith. We stay on the road by taking one step at a time and here's what I want to fully acknowledge. 
this is a lot, right? And what we don't want to be the people is to be the people, and, and we've met these kind of people too, it's why I had a reaction against cessationism, is this kind of like wink and a nod and oh, you'll see one day, right? I'm in on the secret and you're not, and I'm just kind of winking at you. What, what I want our whole church to do, and we're committed to this as a leadership team, we're committed to this as a staff, is just step by step following after Jesus. So here's not the next step today. The next step isn't for you to go start healing people unless you sense God saying that to you. My, my invitation to you is just to pray a simple prayer that Jesus uh, once heard. A guy came to him and asked him to, a guy comes to Jesus and asked him, hey, could you heal my daughter? And, 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 the guy, and Jesus says, I will if you believe. And the guy says, I believe, help my unbelief. I am still walking with a great deal of unbelief in this area. The ditch of theological cessationism feels about as comfy to me as the ditch that Zach and I just kind of hang out in the ditch and we have s'mores parties across the road to each other, you know? Um, what I'm inviting each of us to do today is to pray a simple prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. To take one small step in the direction that Jesus is leading. Uh, and when we go into response time, even while Zach kind of closes us in prayer, I just want to invite you to pray, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, so do you want to close us? Do what you did last service. That was actually amazing. Um, so I'm going to pray. And what I'd like you to do, I'd invite you to do this. Why don't you close your eyes, would you please? Yeah, if you guys would close your eyes. So if you have something, a physical, an emotional um, healing requirement, I want you to just put your arms out like you want to receive it. I, if, if, if that's you, just put your arms out, put your arms up like you want to receive that. And if you're at home, do this. Nobody's watching you at home. Um, I don't want us to feel awkward anymore. I don't want us to feel embarrassed about what God can do. So God, we believe we just need help with our unbelief. So, Lord, if that is in our brains, if our unbelief is in our mind, Lord, get rid of it. If our unbelief is in our hearts, God, get rid of it. And, Lord, for every single person that can hear my voice and that can experience you in a way that they really, really, really desire, God, you say when we ask you things, you're going to do it. Jesus tells us that. When we ask you things, you're going to do it. So here's what we ask. I ask that you heal each and every one of these people of whatever they can think of right now. And it's as simple as that. I just want you to do it. You say it can happen. I want you to do it. And that's what I pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Jesus teaches about prayer. We're going to go to communion, but I want to add this to response time too. When Jesus teaches about prayer, he says something really interesting. He says, he taught them to pray and not give up. And even Jesus, there's this story, I think in Mark 8, where Jesus prays for a guy um, and his eyes heal partway. And Jesus says, can you see? And he says, like, oh, I see trees walking around. And so Jesus prays for him again. And so um, our commitment as, as a church is to persevere in prayer with you, okay? And so here's what that looks like. We're gonna do communion and then we're gonna sing. And if during that song you would like to be prayed for again, um, our oversight team will be in the Otterbein room. Um, and oversight team, I know we have that meeting at 12.30, but we'll just figure it out as we go, okay? But they'll be available. And here, here's what I would, here's my encouragement to you. They will pray with, if, if you pr go forward for prayer today and you're not healed, they will be here next week. And the week after, and the week after, and the week after. We really sense as overseers and elders in our church that God is calling us to at, lead the way in asking, seeking, knocking, right? And so Randy and Jairus, well, Jairus will be in the back, um, and Art and Pam and Harry uh, will be in the Otterbein room to pray with you. But uh, why don't you grab your communion item? As Wesleyans, as people who follow in the steps of John Wesley, we believe that what happens in this meal is an encounter with the presence of Jesus. Hi, this is a miracle. And this encounter with the presence of Jesus 
imparts to us his grace. It might be justifying grace. It might be. The reason we do this so regularly is it might be that the moment that this bread hits somebody's mouth is the moment they actually place their faith in Christ. Because they've held back and they've held back and they've held back and then they do it. It it imparts sanctifying grace to us. It imparts sanctifying grace to us. It imparts grace that heals and makes whole. Because wholeness and holiness are deeply intertwined, which is why Jesus offers us this meal. He offers you himself. Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this as often as you do in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way also, Jesus took a cup said this cup is the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many in forgiveness of sins it's a new cup in my blood take and drink let's drink together oh god pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup that in the eating and drinking of them we might be renewed and refreshed and restored into the image of jesus come holy spirit even as we sing and do that healing work in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand if you're able? Oversight team, go ahead and kind of get yourselves into position and then uh, we'll sing and then we'll get out of here. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist is put in prison. And so he sends a message to Jesus and he says, are you the one that we've been expecting or should we look for somebody else? And uh, what John is asking is for Jesus' ID. So if you were speeding on the way home, don't do that. Don't get pulled over and say, my pastor said I could speed. Um, You'd have to pull out your ID, okay? It would say Terry, it would say Linda, it would say Vanessa. So what Jesus does is he pulls out his ID and he says, "Go go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Jesus' identity, his idea is of a God who heals. God who heals. In the Old Testament, Jehovah Rapha, you are the God who heals. May you walk with him this week. Amen. We'll see you next time. Grace and peace.